things before the brother. One of our commitments as a body of believers is to align the life of our church with the pattern of the New Testament. To align the life of our church to the pattern that we find in the New Testament Scriptures. We're reasonable enough, and I trust sufficiently humble, to recognize that we fall short of this goal. There's a massive chasm between us and the culture of the New Testament. And as we try to bridge that gap, there's no doubt in some sense that our culture may cloud our vision of the New Testament pattern. Second, there may be aspects of the New Testament archetype that we interpret somewhat inaccurately. And third, there may be areas where we believe we have honored the New Testament model, but God sees us somewhat differently than we see ourselves. We recognize all of this. But all of that aside, we know this. Eden Baptist Church consciously strives to order the life of our church to the biblical pattern that is revealed in the New Testament. This is our endeavor, this is our purpose, this is our effort. During the Reformation era in Europe, the Reformers spoke of reformatio in the Latin. Their agenda was to reform the church. The evangelical Anabaptists of that same era spoke not of reformatio, but of restitutio, to restore the church to its apostolic order and essential function. And that is our heartbeat here. While we're not beholden to any group in the past, we do see the project of the local church, we do see what Christ is doing, is to bring us to the pattern that is revealed in the New Testament. Now since New Testament times, various Christian communities have added structures of authority over the local church. Popes and patriarchs and cardinals and bishops and primates and dioceses and synods and denominations and the like. None of these are found in the New Testament documents, but many Christian communions would insist that authority structures set above the local church are acceptable conventions, if not even theological necessities. The New Testament does commend voluntary association and collaboration between local churches. We'll see a bit of that here this morning. But the Bible envisions no authority operating outside of and over the local church. It's just not there in the pages of Scripture. What we do find in the New Testament is evidence of two offices. That is, within the local church, there are two offices that are to lead, to serve, to be faithful within the context of that local church. And with spiritual authority invested particularly in shepherds who lovingly lead autonomous assemblies of believers. So we recently considered the church's two ordinances. There is baptism and there is the Lord's Supper. We look today to what the New Testament reveals about two offices, 
two sets of officers exercising leadership in the church, namely elders and deacons. This is not our invention. This is what we find in the New Testament text, and we seek to put that into practice. Now, eight months ago, as we were working our way through 1 Peter, coming to chapter 5, we talked about this very matter. And so it's something with which we are very familiar. But it's interesting, as we think back on 1 Peter 5, Peter referred to himself as an elder, not as the Pope. He spoke of himself as an elder, as an under-shepherd of Jesus Christ, even as an apostle with authority. He spoke of himself that way. So today we want to consider that office as we work our way through this series on the church, turning here today, not to 1 Peter 5, but to the most extensive passage in the New Testament on this topic. This passage is not a intellectual academic treatment of elders. It is rather a conversation among elders. And as we listen in on that conversation, we gain a clear sense of the nature and intended function of this office. So this passage is by no means an exhaustive treatment. It's just some men talking together. But it does make clear the nature and intended function of the office. And so as we look through this, we find solid, solid principles that we can supplement from other passages of Scripture. But here is a very helpful text. And so I invite you to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. We'll be working through this speech by the Apostle Paul to the elders at Ephesus. But first, just to gain a bit of a background understanding, the Apostle Paul and at least eight other men, most certainly more, but they were traveling by ship along the western coast of the Roman province of Asia. Do we have that map there? I did not talk to any. I am a mess today, I'll admit this. <laughs> there is one there, I don't know if you can find that, Jeff, and if not, we will not hold you responsible, but I did this in, in, in the adult class, I, I reverted to 20 years ago and thought we ended at, at 9.15 or 10.15 again. I, I don't know why I do that, but my brain is, is, and I forgot to talk to them, but you have a map perhaps at the back of your Bible, my apologies, but working down the, the western coast of modern-day Turkey, this group, this team, is in a ship, and they're coming from, going to, from port to port, and uh, there they meet with other believers, and they're bringing with them a sizable gift for the Jerusalem church because Paul wants to get there to celebrate Pentecost and wants to give this gift to the Jerusalem believers who are struggling financially, a gift from the Gentile believers. And as he grabs this gift, brings this gift together from these Gentile churches, he wants to bless the Jerusalem church. And we have a formatting problem. This just, the thing just keeps rolling here today, doesn't it? But uh, Miletus, not millet us, but at any rate, here we are. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, you can figure it all out, but I have no idea how these things happen, but they do. But he stops, the, the group stops at Miletus. Let me point to this screen here. Uh, working their way down, right th about 30 miles from Miletus is Ephesus, where he has spent uh, a lengthy ministry there among these very individuals. Uh, they're working their way, as I mentioned, from Miletus by ship, going to 
got to cross the Mediterranean Sea and end up at Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost. That's his intention. But as they're making this journey, they come back to the elders at Ephesus, sending message to them, and Paul draws them together here in verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. They're in this, on this, this port city, this sizable city. It's about 30 miles from Ephesus as the crow flies, but the, they're not crows. And it had to take several days for everyone to come together. The, the journey there was a lengthy one. But probably because of the size of the financial gift that they have and wanting to allow nothing to happen so that it would limit him getting back to the ship on time, Paul calls them to him. Miletus, again, about 30 miles away, but several days to assemble everyone. You see there in verse 17 that he sent to Ephesus calling the elders of the church to come to him. Now, as we come to that word elders in, in chapter 20, perhaps that's something somewhat new to you, but if you're working your way through the book of Acts, by this point that term is very familiar. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and his team strengthens new, largely Gentile churches in the cities of Lystra, Iconium, Pisidian, Antioch, in the this, in this Roman province of Asia Minor. And we find there in Acts 14.23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Paul, going back through these cities, appoints elders in every church. Paul does not bring men with him and bring these men into places of leadership within the churches. These are men in the churches already. He draws from the congregations themselves, seeking to stabilize and strengthen the churches by appointing qualified elders. It's not to say that it would be wrong for him to bring someone along with, but that's not what is happening here. So we read of this, he's appointing elders in the churches that he started as uh, he commits them to the Lord in whom they had believed, these new churches. And then we, we come to Acts 15. And in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So there in the church at Jerusalem, there are apostles, we know the apostles of Christ, working together with elders as leaders in this ministry in Jerusalem. They labor together on this particular question. And when the council reaches decision, we read this, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. So there the leaders are identified from within the congregation, the whole church involved. They choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with the following letter. The brothers, <coughs> both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. And they deliver the, the message of the decision that they had arrived at, of how the gospel works itself out, particularly in connection to the Old Covenant. We'll not get into that here. But taking leadership, the apostles and the elders speak with authoritative voice as they deliver or report the decision of the council to these other churches. 
The term elders is used by an array of New Testament authors. It's used by Paul, by Luke, by Peter, and James. This term is used across a wide swath of geographical locations and with churches comprising both Jewish and Gentile members. Now, as we come to Ephesus, are there apostles and elders here? The only apostle that's been serving at Ephesus would be Paul himself, and he's no longer there ministering among them. That's the whole point of their meeting here. So it makes perfect sense in line with all that's been developing in the book of Acts that he calls together the elders of the church to come to him. There are not apostles there. But the Apostle Paul had ministered among these elders, and in verses 18 through 27, he recounts those days. Paul is clearly preparing them for the fact that he will never see these elders again in this life. But he also rehearses his earlier ministry that these elders may emulate the way that he operated in the church before them. In Jerusalem church, the baton of leadership we see passed off from apostles to elders. There's a reference to this group of the apostles and elders. And then as the book develops, there is just references to the elders and James perhaps being the leader among equals there as an elder in the church of Jerusalem. But the same thing is in a sense happening here. This apostle is saying, I've worked among you, I'm handing off the baton of leadership to you because I'm never going to be here again. And the implication is there's no apostle that's going to be here again. There are 12 apostles, and they will not be everywhere at once, and they will soon die off. So he assembles the elders of the church at Ephesus. And listening in on this meeting between them, we gain much as to the idea of elder leadership in the church. So gathering them together, verse 17, he says this in verse 18. When they come to him, he said, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In a nutshell, that was his ministry among them. Paul's pastoral ministry in Ephesus, we would say, then is characterized by as humble service to Christ. He ministered to the church as a man who cared very much about the work of Jesus, about the work Jesus was then doing among his people and continues to do. To save a people for his name. This was Paul's interest. This was no routine or unimpassioned job for Paul. He shed tears. He stood against persecution and opposition. It was not an easy post, but he dealt with it because of his love for the gospel and these people. Paul's ministry was also characterized by teaching God's word accurately and without compromise to the entire church, both publicly and privately. That was his task. That's how he operated. 
So verse 21 articulates the essence of the message that he proclaimed as repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the all-important message of the church. To turn from sin, to abandon self-trust, and to place confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ crucified and risen. That He took my place on the cross to die the penalty of my sin rising from the dead. This is the center, the heart of the message of the church. In verses 22 through 24, Paul emphasizes his courage in serving Christ when he says, And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, or bound by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Though speaking of his departure to Jerusalem, the nature of pastoral leadership continues to pulsate through his words. The shepherd of God's flock must have the spiritual backbone to do the right thing no matter the cost. Elders are not to cling protectively to their lives. They are to spend them in Christ's cause. Paul did not want to be in prison, but he knew that he would be in prison. And I think the idea here, what he's saying, the Spirit bearing witness, is that at every port where he landed, prophets came and talked to him and said, you're going to prison. The Spirit of God is indicating this is your future, this is what's going to happen. That's a bit unnerving, isn't it? Everywhere you stop, prophets come and say, there's a word from the Lord that says you are going to land in prison. How does Paul look at this? Verse 24, I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself. Now don't read that psychologically. He's not saying, I'm a worthless piece of trash and I really hope I die. That's, think of it missionally. Paul valued advancing the cause of Christ above protecting his life. The New Testament knows utterly nothing of clergy who serve the diocese or the convention or whatever in order to collect a paycheck and build a fat pension to do whatever is necessary to clear out as much time as possible on the golf course and to just go through the routine every day, collecting a paycheck and living a life like anybody else does in business, just the business happens to be the church. I think Paul would about throw up at that concept, don't you? I don't count my life as precious to myself. I will endure whatever it takes to advance the cause of Christ. That's my job. That's a job I lived out with you. That's where I'm at right now. The only thing that stopped Paul from serving Jesus was when Roman soldiers severed his head from his body. Then he was done serving Christ here. Death held no fear and self held no power over Paul. Because he'd already died. He'd long ago died to self. And in Jesus, he already had eternal resurrection life. 
I'm not going to protect my life. I am going to go to Jerusalem. I know it's going to be bad. I know there's going to be trials that are there, but we see the backbone that he has, the courage that he has to do what is right. He knew the gospel of Christ was worth every human sacrifice because it is a life-changing, history-altering, kingdom-conquering, hope-assuring, sinner-rescuing message. That is way more important than my life, Paul said. What's he saying to them? It's way more important than yours as well. So serve the cause of Christ. Proclaim the gospel of Jesus with this courage. Verse 25, and now he says, Behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. His task was to proclaim the kingdom, verse 25. That is to proclaim God's will and sovereign reign as centered in Christ. And again in verses 26 and 27, we see that pastoral service to Christ includes teaching the whole counsel of God to God's people. The shepherd of Christ's church is to spend his life explaining to the church a comprehensive view of God's revealed truth in the sacred scriptures. There's a lot of content churches will accept. Generally speaking, over the face of the globe, a lot of content they'll accept. But he is to teach the scriptures. For this reason, Paul wrote to Timothy that elders must be able to teach. This is one of the qualifications. They have to have the capacity and the natural giftedness on some level to be capable of communicating with people truth. It's no crime if a Christian does not have the gift of teaching, but because of the nature of the elders' work, the capacity to teach is non-negotiable. And they are to teach such that if anyone rejects the faith, no blame can be placed on these shepherds. I am innocent from the blood of all. What he means is I've spoken the truth. If somebody goes against the truth and they face the judgment of God, it's not my fault. Because I've declared the truth, the whole truth, the counsel of God I've warned against sin and judgment to come, and I have explained salvation in Christ. Now Paul continues to challenge the Ephesian elders with his example among them, but at verse 28 he shifts to imperatival mode. Now he starts giving commands and saying, here's what you guys need to do and remember. Remember, this is is his last conversation with them on earth. He knows it. He's telling them that. Oh, here it is. You go back to Ephesus. As the elders of the local church that you serve, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves. Elders who shepherd God's flock must first shepherd their own hearts. They will never be sinless men, but they must actively and persistently pursue a life of holiness in communion with God, and that needs to be a focus. 
I've talked to two missionaries who have been called home because of moral failure, and both of them offered that this is precisely what they failed to do. Watching over others, caring for the church of God, but not watching over their own hearts. This is real stuff, and it's serious. Always attending to their own spiritual health, always being sure that they are repenting of sin, that they're rooting sin out, that they're seeking to keep in right and fresh relationship with God. Then, verse 28, they're to pay careful attention to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To all the flock, that is, they're to watch over the spiritual health and progress of the entire church. Paul does not explain how this is done, but we learn elsewhere that it involves leading and feeding, tending and defending the flock of God. This is their calling. Elders are to exercise this watch care, recognizing that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You note that in verse 28. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. That is, the Spirit of the risen Christ poured out upon His people in salvation establishes overseers to serve the church. Eldership is not a human invention. And where churches perhaps get into most trouble is when they think of it in those terms and turn the church into a political entity. It looks a lot like Republicans and Democrats and representative government. It's not human invention. It is the design of Christ. The Holy Spirit places overseers in the assembly. So the Spirit so positions such men that they will, verse 28, care for the church of God. It's an unfortunate translation in the ESV. A better translation, it is simply the word shepherd. To shepherd the church of God. Now notice here the elders in verse 17. Who's he talking to? The elders came together, verse 17, and verse 28, they are overseers who are called to shepherd the church of God. And we will find this consistently through the New Testament that overseers and elders and pastors are synonymous terms for one office. And you see that pretty clearly here. These overseers are not overseeing elders, local church pastors. The overseers are the elders. There's one office. In Titus 1.5, Paul refers to them as elders, and two verses later, he refers to them as overseers, again confirming that it's one office in view in his mind. So a bishop is a pastor. A local church pastor. A bishop is not one who governs pastors or churches with authority. A bishop is an overseer, an elder, a pastor, a man called to shepherd God's flock. His task is to shepherd. And you might say he wears these different hats or just synonymous terms, however you want to look at it. He's an elder, pastor, overseer, shepherd. And you note there at the end of verse 28, 
that he is to care, to shepherd the church of God, which Christ obtained with his own blood. Which he obtained with his own blood. Elders are never to forget that the souls that they shepherd were purchased by Jesus on the cross. I don't know many more sobering thoughts that have ever passed through this mind. It is His church. It is His blood-bought people. And elders are under-shepherds of the great shepherd. It's His church. And notice the specific emphasis that Paul places on that watch care. Verse 29, when he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. Wolves are the mortal enemies of sheep, and here used figuratively, false teachers are the mortal enemies of the church of God. God's truth is the sanctifying security and food of God's flock. Shepherds must protect that truth by standing against false teachers with unrelenting focus. Truth matters. It's a daunting task. And thankfully, he says, knowing it's larger than any single man or larger than any group of men, he says, verse 31, or 32 rather, and now I commend you to God and to the work of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. As he prepares to leave them, Paul entrusts them to God's grace-filled Word. God's Word alone will fit the church for their eternal inheritance as God's holy people. And then he returns to his own example and probably thinking about the immoral motivations of false teachers, which he's spoken of in other places. He reminds them, verse 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. I wasn't in this for the money. And you know it. You yourselves know, verse 34, that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. In contrast to false teachers, traveling philosophers, religious hucksters, Paul was not motivated by money. It wasn't greed that drove him. He had every right to receive pay for proclaiming the gospel and serving the churches, but he did not exercise that right to forestall false accusations from his critics because so many traveling speakers were in it for the money. They could collect a lot of money along the trail. No TV. There's no internet. There's not a lot of the entertainment that we have, and people would show up at these places, and the, the traveling speaker would come and wow the crowd. 
who would pay for the show. Because of that setting, Paul did not take money, but worked with his own hands during the day and wherever he worked and wherever he could to provide for himself and others who were with him that no one would accuse him of trying to get rich. You remember, he's collecting a massive amount of money from the Gentile churches. How do you know Paul's not dipping into the till? You know because you see how he lives every day. He goes to work. Paul thus aligned his life with the teaching of Jesus who insisted it's better to give wealth away than it is to amass it for self. Jesus taught, as one has said, that generosity to others is an antidote to covetousness and a way to escape the captivating deceit of riches. I was free of that deceit. In his departure, we read of it historically (coughs) at verse 36. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. We don't kiss, we hug in these situations, but it's the same thing. It was culturally in their time. They were hugging him. They were crying on his shoulder as he left. I, I think there's a significant point here. They did not scoff when he talked to them about his legacy among them. They didn't roll their eyes and go, oh yeah, whatever. They did not respond with indifference or business like, yes, we've got the lecture now, we'll go back. They cried. Paul's ministry revealed that he loved them. He spent his life for the Ephesian church. That he, he, It showed that he was devoted to their growth in Christ, and these men loved him for it. To think of never seeing him again hurt because of who he was among them. No shepherd enjoys such a relationship with a flock going through the emotions or I'm sorry, going through the motions as an employee. It doesn't work like that. No shepherd enjoys such a relationship with a flock by simply being a nice guy. They cried. It hurt to think of him no longer among them. Paul was all in for the Ephesian church and they knew it. With courage and impassioned energy, he challenged the Ephesian elders to relate to the flock in the same manner. And let me draw just a few points out from this text that we can chase and chew on and think about as a church and I trust develop today in our our home groups and in the days ahead. The first matter that we see here that we, I think we have to consider is qualification. The task of leading, feeding, tending, and defending God's flock is not for everyone. All believers are to be, in some measure, a shepherd of souls. We are to care for and edify one another as members of Christ's body. All of us are to do this. 
So the shepherding function is our task, not the task of a few. But not everyone is called by God to serve as an elder, and we should all be at peace with that. Know that God has placed each individual member within the body for a specific function. By God's grace, there will be men who are qualified to be elders who do not serve in that capacity for any number of reasons. There will be others who are not qualified through no fault of their own. They may be drawing from 1 Timothy 3, for instance, new converts. It's not their fault. They weren't saved sooner. Well, it might be their fault, but where they're at, it's nothing they can do about that. They're going to need time to grow. And it's no crime at all if God has not uniquely given them the capacity to teach people the Word of God. But the church that is sensitive to the Spirit's leading, and I want to emphasize here the Spirit's leading, Remember, he said, the Holy Spirit has placed you in this assembly to oversee. The the church that is sensitive to the Spirit's leading will acknowledge that certain men are qualified for such service in the assembly, and they will gladly and faithfully call such men to the task. 1 Timothy 3 helps us to know what Jesus intends with respect to qualification. Such men must be above reproach and moral reputation in the community and in the church. And 1 Timothy 3 works out some of the implications of that in the home and in the community and in the assembly. They must be men. Countercultural statement, despised by our world, I recognize. But when you recognize what God is doing in His design of the home, you realize this is not an unnecessary or ridiculous restriction, but rather is a pattern by God's creative purpose. When that pattern is worked out, it is in no sense demeaning, it is in no sense negative, it is only positive. But again, we submit here to what God's Word says, not to what our culture dictates. This is a matter that will continue to isolate Our church, certainly, and many similar churches that seek to be submissive to the Word of God. They're supposed to be married. That's a good thing. They don't have to be, but it's a good thing if they are. And Scripture teaches that as well. But it is foolish for a church to place a man in such a position unless it is clear that the Holy Spirit has fit him for that task. It would be ridiculous to put him in that position so he comes to church more often and stays more involved. It would be ridiculous to put him in that position because he has money or influence. It evidences the faithfulness and the skill of the assembly to identify that kind of work, the shepherding capacity, and to have the courage to encourage such individuals in right time, to step forward into that work. Qualification. Secondly, plurality. The persistent emphasis of the New Testament is that elders work together as a team. In Acts 14.23, Paul appoints elders in every city and instructs Titus to do the same in Titus 1 and verse 5. Paul called the elders, plural, of the Ephesian church to gather. The local church at Jerusalem was led by elders, plural. Every time they are referenced in the book of Acts, they they are referred to in the plural. 
Every time, well, Philippians 1.1 as well, they're referenced there in plural form, overseers and deacons. James 5, it's an important passage. There a person who is deathly ill is encouraged to call the elders of the church to their sickbed. Now think about that for a few moments. It's not all the elders in the city. The elders you know, you know well enough to call them to your sickbed. Think of the implications that are there. James envisions a local setting where there is intimate knowledge of the elders and careful attention to specific members of the flock. All these references, and there are more, indicate that elders typically work together as a team of equals. The historical setting also points this way as elders were widely recognized leaders in Israel. It's not wrong to have a leader among equals who shares equal authority with the other elders as James seems to do in the Jerusalem church. And it's not necessarily disordered. I would not think to have one elder in a church if that's all that qualify. Have to ask some questions about the, the church and its viability. But the consistent New Testament pattern is for elders to function together as a team. We see numerous evidences of this throughout the New Testament. Thirdly is function. It's pretty clear, isn't it, as Paul speaks, elders are not businessmen, they're not social coordinators, they're not building managers, accountants, or politicians. They are servants of Christ who proclaim God's truth to His people and lead them to follow Jesus, despising sin and loving God. Wise is the local church that recognizes this and encourages their shepherds to shepherd. There will be responsibilities and oversight, but they are at the end of the day not managers. They're not cattle drivers. They're certainly not butchers. They're shepherds who lead out at the front of the flock. Which direction? Financial security? Success in the eyes of others, prosperity, social connectedness, psychological well-being. Where are they leading? Where the shepherds are to lead is to a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. They're to say, there he is, let's go that way. And there with Christ we will feed We will grow. We will be faithful to this call. Let's go. I'm going that way by God's grace. I'm watching my own heart and life, say the elders to the church. Let's all go together. We're not better than you. We're not sinless people. But we're pointing to Jesus Christ. Let's follow Him. Now, there may be some among us here, and you're, you're honestly you're pretty confused and going, why on earth does this matter? Why would I want somebody shepherding my soul? That sounds more invasive than it sounds helpful. I'd really rather that there wasn't anybody around that's giving me that kind of scrutiny. What is the point of this? Why, why do you people think this is important? If you're asking that question honestly, it's probably a clear indication 
that you have not yet met the shepherd of your soul. You haven't come to the place where you have come to know the good shepherd. When you come to know the good shepherd, you realize that you've been an orphan soul. As verse 28 says, Jesus purchased the church with his blood. In verse 21, we are called to repent. That means we recognize that Jesus Christ has bought me with His blood, paying the penalty of my sin. I turn from my sin and myself to the Good Shepherd. And I trust in His work through His death, paying the penalty of my sin and His resurrection life being given to me. I put my faith, my confidence, my trust in Him I now have a good shepherd, a shepherd of my soul. And I would plead with you, if you have not come to that place of saving faith in Christ, be reconciled to God. Turn from your sin and yourself and the emptiness of life that you know is there as an orphan soul and trust in Jesus as your soul's shepherd. You must do this. It is His call upon your life. And as the Good Shepherd, Jesus will never forsake you. He will labor night and day to lead and feed and tend and defend your soul as He cares for all of His flock. What Paul was doing was simply imitating Jesus. You come to Christ as your Savior, you have one who will labor for you tirelessly, night and day. You will have a good shepherd who will shed tears for you and who will give his life away for your good. There are no elders in this church who compare very well with the Apostle Paul. I I think we would all admit that. We fall short of that standard We fall very far short of the standard set by Christ the Good Shepherd. But it is our desire to pattern our ministry to this body, this church, according to the pattern of the New Testament. And so we appeal to you, those who speak as elders, for your prayers. And I thank God it is abundantly evident that you are praying for us. Thank you. We need you. We are weak and small people. By the grace of God, pray for us, uphold us, strengthen us, and we will continue occasionally to pray the prayer that we do as elders if we're going to hurt this church and if we're going to shame the cause of Christ, take us out first kill us before we hurt this flock. We pray that for you, for your good, and we mean it. Pray for us that we don't have to be taken out. Pray for us that we'll be faithful and live faithfully before you and rejoice in Christ's love for you to give you imperfect shepherds who do care for your soul. And who, by the grace of God, think of you as people who have been purchased by the blood of Christ. Let's pray.
Our Father, we give thanks to You for what You have done through our Savior to provide forgiveness of sin. And we're humbled, we're brokenhearted by our weakness, our lack of love for this flock and our selfish ways. We're humbled and concerned that we would stand true for you with courage and with compassion and faithfulness, that humility would mark our way, and that we would point ever not to self and to our purposes, but to Jesus Christ. God, help the shepherds of this church and the shepherds of your people throughout the world keep us pure and take us out if we're not going to be. If we're going to hurt the flock, if we're going to shame the name of Christ, get rid of us and call us home. God, I pray that through our weakness and failure and through the disappointments that we perpetuate in the lives of your people, that you will mercifully and graciously permit the shepherds of this assembly to be a benefit, an edifying force in the life of this assembly. And for this church, I pray that you'd give courage. It takes courage. It takes skill to prepare and to place individuals in this position and to relate to them in a way that is faithful to Christ's intention. There is not an elder here who does not understand why people would very easily think very little of us. And perhaps even through our own failures and weaknesses in humanity, dismiss us. God, I pray that you'd help your flock see that through imperfect shepherds, the good shepherd is at work. And I ask that you would deepen and bless and strengthen this congregation to prosper according to the New Testament pattern. We realize we don't see it all. We're not here in pride saying our church has got it all right. But we are striving to get it right. And I pray by your grace that we'd be faithful not to what our culture dictates, not to what some communion is doing, but I pray that we would respond to the revelation found in the text of Scripture, and that you will bless your church to that end. And as we pray and together and as we talk together as your people today through these matters, may you deepen us in these truths. And again, for anyone who knows not Christ as Savior, I plead in their behalf that you bring them to the Good Shepherd and help them to see the important work of the church of Jesus Christ, edifying one another and building each other up in the faith. I pray that you'll do this work even today among us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Please stand and for a few moments in silence, consider in your own heart God's truth preached this morning, reflect upon it, meditate, pray, and let the word sink and begin to take root in your heart.